Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We uh, have recently finished up uh, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and I was uh, at a bit of a loss about what to preach, and uh, Pastor Erickson actually suggested that I go through First Peter, and the more I thought about it this past week, the more I, I thought that that was actually a fantastic idea, that it was very, very fitting for us as we continue to struggle with the, the effects of this coronavirus. Um, I did think that this would be a, a very fitting letter to go through, so we will make our way now in the mornings through the book of First Peter. And we will begin this morning. So if you would, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word from 1 Peter chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Lord, as we do begin this letter, which teaches Christians how to suffer well for your glory, help us, Lord, to suffer well, to suffer well as those who are elect exiles, those who have been so blessed by you and yet who have not yet reached our homeland. Lord, we do pray that you would open up our eyes to these things for the sake of the glory of your name, that we might be enabled to honor you in this life. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in uh, our family worship, we have recently been going through the story of Balaam, which is part of the reason why we read that earlier from uh, Numbers chapter 24. And we read Balaam's third oracle, which deals with Balaam. a situation where Balaam is looking up. He sees the people of God encamped in the wilderness. They have been wandering around for 40 years. Uh, Many of the old generation has died. If not, all of them have died. They have suffered quite a lot, but yet they have now reached the edge of the promised land. They've not crossed into the promised land, but they begin to conquer the nations that are on the other side of the promised land. And Balak, the king of Moab, becomes scared And so he hires Balaam to curse the people of God. But after failing to do that twice, the third time he looks up and he sees the people of God encamped in this wilderness after all of their sufferings. And yet all Balaam can speak about when he when he looks at their tents and he looks at their camping is that they are a people who are blessed. They are a people who spiritually, even if your eyes can't see it, you look at them and you think, that is a people that is suffering greatly. Yet for Balaam, he, see, he sees them and he says, this is the people that are blessed. And this is 
a picture of the Christian life. Outwardly, our bodies may be wasting away, as the Apostle Paul says, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For those who have the eyes to see it, we are the people who are most blessed, even though the world may look at us and say that we are above all men most to be pitied. This is exactly the way the Christian life works. We are those who are blessed because we get to live in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us, just like the people of God in the wilderness had had the pillar of fire and cloud to guide them. God was in their midst, and so they were blessed, and yet their outward circumstances may be told a bit of a different story. And this is very much the theology which the Apostle Peter puts forth in his first epistle here. It is a theology of suffering, suffering well for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter makes it very clear, you are very blessed. You, you have every kind of spiritual blessing you could imagine. You are an elect of God, an elect person chosen by God before all ages. And yet, at the same time, you are also an exile. Or as our translation here says, you are a pilgrim. You are someone who is not in his homeland. You are in some way outside of the land to which you are going to. You are, therefore, an elect exile. And really, the entire first epistle of Peter is a working out of that theology. You are very blessed, and yet you will suffer in this life. And the book of First Peter is meant to teach you how you are to suffer in this life in light of who you are as an elect exile. And so this is very fitting for us as, as we are in very difficult times. We're living in times now where just in the last couple months, we've had uh, almost 40 million reported job losses and, and, um, and applications for unemployment. We are uh, living in times where there are, uh, there's the, the threat of the coronavirus is that even in our own country, the, the, the death toll has reached almost 100,000. Uh, we are living in times where we are living isolated from one another and are unable to meet together. And that can pose its own problems as we deal uh, with loneliness and separation from others. We are living in times where we as Christians are called to suffer. And so it's very important for us to understand the message of the Bible with regard to how a Christian must suffer in this life. And particularly what Peter contributes to that conversation as this is, as, as I mentioned, a letter all about this particular theme. And uh, Peter even gives us a hint of what he's going to be talking about and what that theology is in his heading. Now, there are some things with the, this, the, with the greeting of the letter that are very standard. For instance, we have um, the very standard greeting of uh, the, the mention of the author and then a brief bit about who the author is. We read that this is Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who is the author uh, of the letter. As the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the Peter who is with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ all throughout his ministry. The Peter who is famous for saying things that were sometimes very, very wise and great and at other times uh, were quite far from the mark as he was the one that confessed that Jesus was the son of God. Uh, but yet also said that Jesus should never go to the cross. And so um, he is to be commended for the one and was rebuked um, for the other. This is the letter of that particular Peter. And then the, the uh, greeting here in terms of, of the introduction of the author is quite standard. Uh, also, we have a very standard greeting at the, the very end of the greeting and at the end of verse 2. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace be multiplied uh, to you. These was, would have been a common way to to greet uh, churches. If you look at uh, Paul's greetings, uh, there is uh, something very similar that happens in all of his letters. But 
there are yet some things that are um, quite important and distinct about this greeting, and that's particularly with respect to the way in which Peter addresses those to whom he is writing. And very often in the various epistles found throughout the New Testament, there is usually, or often at least, some kind of clue about what the book is going to be about or something that we need to keep in mind as we read through um, the letter. And this is no different. And Peter puts the theology of the greeting in by uh, using a few um, select terms to describe those to whom he is writing. And the main way that he describes these people is as elect exiles, or as, as our translation has it here, pilgrims who are elect. In the, the original Greek, the words uh, pilgrims at the beginning of, that's actually in verse uh, verse 1, and then the word elect that begins verse 2 in the NKJV, which I think they're actually put together in other translations. Uh, those are put together in the Greek. So the idea is this is something that was written to the elect exiles. And this here, right at the beginning then, Peter puts forward these, these two great ideas. In a very real sense, you are blessed. You have been greatly blessed by God. No matter what your outward circumstances are, you are the elect of God, chosen from before the foundations of the world. You are the elect, and yet you are also, in this life, going through a wilderness. So you are also exiles. You are very much like the people of God as they move towards the promised land, that Balaam, when he looked up and he saw these people who were exiles, who were seeking a homeland, he yet recognized that they were the blessed of God. And so this is what we're going to look at here this morning, considering those two main ideas that Peter puts forward, that you are elect and you are an exile. You are greatly blessed, but you are called to suffer for the glory of God. And we'll look at this under two uh, simple headings, just looking at first election. And then secondly, uh, exile, what it means to be the elect of God, and then what it means uh, to be living in this world as an exile. So we'll look at these things in turn, and we will begin with looking at uh, the way Peter addresses the church of God as the elect. Notice again, this, this begins um, in verse 2, elect to the pilgrims, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to be uh, elect? Well, there are a number of things that we can say about election um, in the Bible. One of the things that I think this particular opening makes very clear is that both of these, uh, both of these ways of describing the people of God to which Peter is writing both election, those who are elect, and exiles, they are building on Old Testament themes. Uh, these, these, uh, these words build on things that the people of God would have been familiar with as descriptions of the people of God in the Old Testament. So who are the chosen people? Who were the elect of God in the Old Testament? Well, it was clearly the Israelites. This is something that Moses makes very, very clear. As the nation becomes a nation, they were immediately set apart for God to be his chosen people. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, and even before that, we see uh, hints of the same thing. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there is this recognition that God has chosen and set his affections on Israel. He set his affections on that nation more than any of the other nations. And here, the apostle Peter is recognizing that those same blessings, that same description, which was true of 
the Old Testament saints as those who are chosen by God, that now applies to the New Testament church, even to a New Testament church that's full of people who aren't Jewish, uh, who aren't formally a part of the ethnic identity of Israel. They yet have all of those same benefits, and they are called now the elect of God. Just as the Old Testament church was called the chosen people of God, the elect, so too now uh, everyone who is a part of the New Testament church has those same blessings, but yet even to a greater degree because we have them uh, sealed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not just a promise of someone who would come, but who is actually who has actually come in the flesh. And so this is the way then that Peter even uh, expands on these things. Notice there are three ways that the that Peter expands on this idea of election in verse two. And notice they, they deal, there's one phrase for each of the persons of the Trinity. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, the Father, the Son, uh, and the Spirit. The blessings of election are only realized in the one God who exists in three persons. Election is ultimately Trinitarian. It was something that happened in eternity. You were elect before even the foundations of the world, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. But yet even the, the fruit of that election is carried out by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and then applied to you by his Spirit. So that you become the elect of God in the sense of you realize the benefits of election and fully uh, come into the fruition of all of those benefits only as you are related to each of the three persons of the Trinity, even as you are uh, have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So notice, notice as we go through each of these things what, what it means to be, uh, to be elect here. Notice the first thing is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here we clearly see the same thing that the Apostle Paul teaches, which I just mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1, that election happens in eternity. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. It is something that is, is that happened uh, before God had actually done anything in time. He had already set his affections on you in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is something much more to this idea of foreknowledge than simply that God saw into the future and then decided to uh, elect and choose you. You'll know that there is uh, one of the, the great debates between Calvinism and Arminianism is um, that Arminianism will say there is election, but it's only it's nothing more than just a recognition of God of who would come to him. It's the idea of some, simply nothing more than foreknowledge. But one of the, the, the things that we have to recognize about the idea of knowledge in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of God or any other person knowing another person, it is highly intimate language. And it does not just mean that, that there is a recognition of some fact that's going to happen. And that's not what foreknowledge means either. Knowledge has to do with relationship and love, setting affections on one. This is what it means when, when it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, it doesn't just mean that God knew the fact that you would come to him, or even he knew the fact of your election before all eternity. It means that in, in eternity, he set his affections on you in love. He foreknew you in 
his love. And this is what it means to be elect, that God loved you before the foundations of the world for nothing in yourself, nothing that he would foresee, but only in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is this is the way election is first described with relation to, to the Father. It is an election that is in love. But secondly, notice it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. When, it, when you uh, begin to benefit from the election of God in your life, it is because you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You are sanctified by the Spirit. You are set apart from this world to God. You are made holy and cleansed from your sins by the Spirit so that now as people see you, you can be seen to be an elective God as you do not follow the ways of this world, but you live a life that is godly and pleasing before him. This is, uh, this is how election is realized in the sanctification of the Spirit. But notice then third, election is also for two things, the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is picking up on covenantal language. When Moses uh, set apart the people of God for God by uh, having them enter into a covenant with God, he sprinkled blood upon them in Exodus chapter 24 and said that this is now the blood of the covenant and they are now pledging themselves. They had to pledge themselves to obey God in everything. And this is exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, but even to a much greater extent not just the blood of a bull or a goat that was slaughtered, but rather through the blood of the eternal Son of God. You have been sprinkled because of the election which you had. You, you were elect so that you could be sprinkled by this blood, cleansed from all your sins and be brought into this special covenant relationship with God such that he would say that you are his special people. And you have done this. This has happened. You were elect for these reasons so that you could also then obey that you would be given the obedience that is necessary to be in this covenant relationship with God. This is how election is worked out. And really, we can see that really all of salvation flows from this, uh, this great act of God in eternity as he set his affections on his people. He does that in eternity, and then he sends his son to win the benefits for his people and then he sends his spirit to apply all those benefits to his people. All of salvation flows out of this electing love of God. This love which and this salvation which was planned by God in eternity, which was accomplished by the Son and then applied by the Spirit. And this, this idea is worked out all throughout uh, the book of First Peter. So for instance, um, in terms of the application of salvation with the Spirit, we have in First Peter 1, uh, verses 3 through 5, uh, Peter's saying that you've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given an inheritance which cannot be taken, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You have received a great salvation, one that was is so great in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1, that even the angels long to look into the things which you have. You have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, in verses 18 and 19, you have been born again by the incorruptible word of God in chapter 1, verse 23. You are being built into a temple of God by the Spirit and are, then can offer spiritual sacrifices to God in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. You have become received all the blessings that were put upon Israel 
as you are called a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation in chapter 2, verse 9. And you are brought to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called the shepherd and bishop of your souls in chapter 2, verse 25. All of throughout this book, Peter wants you to understand the great blessings that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are incredibly blessed. You are one who is chosen in God. Now, it can be very tempting to think, you know, I've been blessed in these great ways. I am one of the elect of God. It can be tempting to think then, in light of that, that, that you do not therefore need to suffer in this life. If I am an elect child of God, if God truly loves me in all of these ways, how could it be that I am suffering so much in this world? How could it be that, that God can say that he loves me, and then yet I experience in this life so much pain? Well, one of the things that Peter makes very clear in his book all throughout this epistle is that you are blessed, but that blessing does not function in the epistle to, to, to mean that therefore you will no longer suffer, but rather it is the blessings which become the foundation for you to be able to suffer well in this life. Let me, let me say that again. You are incredibly blessed, but that blessing in this book is not used to say, therefore, you will not suffer. The function in the context of all these passages is to say, you have received these great and wonderful blessings. Therefore, whatever you can suffer must suffer in this life. It is something that is you're, you're simply worth it. And these blessings are the encouragement that you need and the foundation that you need to suffer in such a way that you do it in order to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because suffering or election is not the only thing that the, that the Apostle Peter is speaking of here. You are not just elect, but you are in fact an elect exile. You are an elect exile. Your election and the way in which that has become a reality for you in this life in terms of your fruition of it that becomes the basis for you to live well as an exile. And so we'll look now at that second theme that the Apostle Peter speaks of, that, that there is also an exile. There, you are a sojourner. You are a pilgrim in this world. You are not currently living in your homeland. Now, this is something that is also very, very clearly uh, an, an expansion of an Old Testament theme. The people of God in the Old Testament were the elect exiles. They were chosen by God, and yet they were often, very often, in the wilderness. And we see this is particularly the case because the word pilgrim or exile or sojourner is then qualified by, um, by the word dispersion. You are pilgrims of the dispersion. This is a word that was used to describe the people of God who were in exile after the Babylonian captivity. After uh, Babylon came and carried off the Jews, uh, there were then you know, uh, uh, people who had already been carried off by the Assyrians over 100 and, about 150 years before that. And so the people of God then were scattered, and very few of them actually returned um, to Israel in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, there is a recording of the people of God returning to Jerusalem, but this was actually very, very few. Most of the people remained in exile, and they were scattered throughout all the world, and this became known as the dispersion. The dispersion. It was the reality of the people of God. They were in exile, 
and they were seeking their return from exile. They were seeking their return into uh, their homeland. And this is, this is what happens all throughout the Old Testament. This is really just building on the pattern which was established particularly uh, with the Exodus. Th- th- think about the way the Exodus worked and the way it works particularly with the, the Balaam story, which we read earlier. When the people of God are in the wilderness on the edge of the promised land, they have received their initial redemption. They, the Passover has happened. They've been redeemed from Egypt. They've been brought out. They have been saved in that regard, and yet they're in the wilderness. They're not to the promised land yet. And so the people of God, even as, even as the book of, De- of Deuteronomy ends, they're not yet in the promised land. And the Old Testament emphasizes this theme, uh, particularly with the way that the Old Testament uh, was structured in terms of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible. The order is a bit different than in the English Bible. But what we see with the Hebrew Bible is at the end of every major section— in the ordering of the Hebrew Bible, every major section, then even going into the New Testament with the way we, d- we divide our Bible, our New Testament into different sections, every single one ends with the people of God in the wilderness. So at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the people of God are on the edge of the promised land and they're about to go in. At the end of the prophets in the book of Malachi, the people of God are in exile and they are waiting for the one to return to his temple. They're waiting for God, the Elijah, to come and for the Lord to come quickly to his temple. And then the end of the Hebrew Bible, the very last book, is Second Chronicles, which ends with the decree of Cyrus to return, bring the people back from exile. The book of Acts, you may wonder, why, it, why is it that in the book of Acts, at the end of the historical books of the New Testament, that the end is Paul in prison? There's no record of him dying. There's no record of him getting out of prison. Many people think that he did, in fact, get out of prison. Uh, after that initial imprisonment in Rome, and yet there's no record of it. It just ends abruptly. Uh, it is it like it is like uh, a signal to the church: you are like Paul in prison, yet yet clearly very blessed. And then even at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the same thing: come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We are the church who is looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if we were to ask as a church, where are we in redemptive history? It's really the exact same answer. We are a church that is greatly blessed, the elect of God, and yet we are in the wilderness waiting for our entry into the land of Canaan. This is the reality for you. There is much to suffer because we are the church that is, in fact, in the wilderness. Now, there are a number of very interesting things about Peter using this language of exiles of the dispersion and applying it to the New Testament church. One of them is the fact that that Peter takes these Old Testament themes and he's applying them to a church that is predominantly Gentile. It's not a church that is uh, predominantly Jewish at all. Notice the, the, the particular places that he's uh, writing this letter to. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these places places are found in the, the general area of Asia Minor. Uh, think about this has been the, the, the region of Galatia, uh, the region where uh, Ephesus was in general in, in Asia Minor. And both of the letters that Paul writes to those churches make it very clear that there are a number of Gentiles uh, in those churches and one of the main things, the main reasons even why Paul wrote those letters is, is to address the issue of Gentile inclusion in the church. And so here we have this, this great Old Testament idea of being in exile, and it is yet applied to the church. 
the, to the New Testament church, even if that church is, is made up mostly of Gentiles. And one of the things that's very clear then from this and very many other passages in the New Testament is that the New Testament church is the true succession of, of Old Testament Israel, that it really is the church that has the great heritage uh, of the people of God in the Old Testament. And then what is also very striking is that this idea of exile and dispersion is applied to the New Testament church even though Christ has already come. Now think about that. We've, we've looked at this a, a number of uh, times in other passages um, in other weeks, how with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was the way back to God. In some sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the exile. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and that was one of the things that was prophesied. When the Messiah comes, then all the people will be gathered from the furthest corners of the world, and they'll be brought back to God. How is it then that the Apostle Peter can write these words to a church after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are the elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, the answer is that even though the Lord Jesus Christ has come, with salvation in the New Testament, there is a very prominent feature of um, our salvation having already come and yet in some sense not yet being here. And so if we were to ask the question, did Christ end the exile of the dispersion? We'd have to say, well, yes and no. Yes and no. The new creation has begun. It began with the Lord Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead. And even all of us who receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we are new creations in him. Our, our inward being is being renewed. And yet the new creation has not been consummated. Outwardly, our bodies are still captive to the old creation. We are in this sense living in between the times. We're living in the middle. In some sense, we have God's presence with us, even greater than anything that the Old Testament church could experience. And yet... In some sense, we are still in exile. We have not yet reached the end goal. We are not yet in the promised land. We're not in Canaan. We are the people. We are like the people of God in the wilderness. We have been redeemed from Egypt, but we have not yet crossed the Jordan. We are in the wilderness, and all those who have spiritualized the sea will look at us like like Balaam did, and they'll say, "This is the blessed people." even though their outward experiences may not indicate it. And this theme of exile and suffering more particularly for the glory of God because of exile is developed um, in a number of places all throughout the book of 1 Peter as well. So think of um, the end of chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, and as a part of the instructions to servants uh, that Peter gives, he says, you are to suffer well under your masters if you're called to it, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And therefore, he has left you an example of how you are to behave in this world, even if you are mistreated. Or think then later of uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 17, where Peter makes a very clear, a long section on suffering, that if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are in fact blessed. That is, that is God will, will bless you for your sufferings if you do it for the sake of righteousness. Let, let no one suffer for the sake of unrighteousness, but if you are called to suffer for godliness, then you are blessed. Or think also of chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, where the, Peter says, among many other things, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you have to face in this life, as though something strange were happening to you. These, these things are not strange. It's going to be normal for a Christian to suffer. And so this is, a, a, again, a theme that's worked out all throughout 
um, the epistle. But the emphasis of the epistle is not just on a warning or a recognition, an instruction that the Christian life is one of suffering. It's not just saying that in this life you will suffer. That's not the, that, not the purpose of the epistle, but rather the purpose is, is to teach the people of God how you are to suffer in this world. In light of the blessings you have received, suffer for righteousness' sake. Suffer as a Christian. Suffer as one who has received all these blessings from God. And so this is said, uh, summarized very well in chapter 4, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God. Let your suffering be used for the sake of the glory of God, because you are in exile. Part of what it means to be in exile, it's not just that you're removed from your homeland, but also because you're removed from your homeland, um, you ought not to participate in the ungodliness of this world. This is not your home. This is not where you're a part of. These are not uh, the customs that define uh, your heritage. You are a citizen of heaven. Therefore, if you are called to suffer, let it be that you would suffer as a Christian. Let it be that you would suffer as one who recognizes that he is an exile in this world, that your citizenship is in another place, that place to which you are looking, the, the, as you seek the city which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. This is what you are called to in this life. And so as we think about uh, the way this would apply to our situation with the coronavirus, think of uh, Peter, Peter's words. Do not think it strange that you are suffering because of things like a virus, like a coronavirus, or even that there are other ways in which you are greatly suffering in this life. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. And what Peter, in this epistle, wants to make clear to the church of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is that what you are called to do is not avoid suffering. If you can't avoid suffering in a godly way, we should avoid it. But what you are called to do is suffer well for the sake of the glory of God. You are to suffer well. You are not to complain in your suffering, but rather you are to ask God for strength to glorify him in his suffering. To pray, you know, Lord, I know that you receive glory when your people suffer faithfully for your name. I know that you receive glory when this happens. Therefore, give me the strength to be able to endure in a godly manner all the things that you, that you will bring upon me in your wisdom. I know, Lord, that suffering is a part of the Christian life, that it is only through much suffering, as the Apostle Paul has said, that we can enter into the Christian life. Help me to suffer in a way that when others see this suffering that I'm going through, that they will know that I have a God who takes care of me and that he is the one who has given me the strength to, uh, to stand well during the suffering and who has given me the eyes to see beyond the sufferings of this life. And so you see, this is a very fitting opening to the book, to the elect exiles. This is what Peter writes, to the pilgrims who are elect, to the, the people who are incredibly blessed, and yet whose, whose uh, portion it is in this life to suffer for the sake of the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, this is what all of you are. All of you in this life are elect exiles, chosen in all eternity, for great and incomprehensibly good blessings, and yet called to suffer in this world. You are like the people of God in the wilderness. 
the, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is with you, even in your very hearts as God indwells you by his spirit. You have been redeemed from Egypt, even, even more from Satan and death itself. And yet you are walking through this wilderness as a people that is suffering. And what you need, what you need in order to be able to suffer well in this life is to recognize that even as all of these things are true of you and you are in the wilderness now, yet even as with the book of Joshua, the people of God did cross over that Jordan and get to the promised land so that at the end of his life, Joshua could say, not one of the good promises which God has made to his people have fallen, but they have all come to pass. So too it will be that there will be a day in this life uh, and, and when, the, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns that we will be able to, to look back and say that not one of the promises of God have fallen, but they have all come to pass as we experience his blessings in the new heavens and the new earth. When we as a church cross over that Jordan and make it to the promised land, there is a day coming of consummation. It is for us to, to, to labor well in the wilderness, not to complain like the people of God did, but to recognize the promises of God, to believe them, and to know that our Lord and Savior is coming back for us. And when he does, he will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, how we do worship and adore you. How we do thank you, Lord, for the, for the great promises which you've given to us. Help us, O oh Lord, to understand what it means to be elect exiles, that we have been blessed in so many ways, and yet, O oh Lord, we are yet wandering through the wilderness, not without a guide, but with you as our guide, moving towards that great day when all things will be made new, when death itself will be nothing but a memory. Lord, we do uh, pray that you would grant us the grace to be faithful to you during this time, that you would give your church the strength to do this, that your name might be honored and praised in all that we suffer. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.